Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's 4.0 Solutions live Q&A, or as we like to call it, the weekly podcast. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds, joining you from upstate New York this week uh, with my special co-host, David Schultz of both G5 Consulting and Matrix um, Technologies. Matrix yep. Technologies, right? So, Dave, actually, uh, real quick, do you want to tell us the, you know, um, how much of you is G5 and how much of you is Matrix? That's well, so for the, I guess you're going to call it what used to be my main hustle is now my side hustle. So mm -hmm. full-time work is um, with Matrix Technologies. I lead up the solution architects so that as we go out and roll out 4.0 solutions, I'm involved in that uh, both from a technology standpoint as well as a an overall strategy standpoint of it's not just the technology we're putting in, but it's what is the strategy for our digital transformation. Uh, as we've talked about, it's you know digital transformation. It's a strategy. I'm a huge believer in strategy, mm -hmm. so it just it's it's a very a perfect fit for me. But it's how are we going to use the, this information? What are, what value are we going to create within the organization, and what competitive advantage is that uh, start? So that that's the initial part of it, but. Um, that's what I do. And then every now and again, there's just some uh, work that I've had that's ongoing. Um, so I get, continue to do that as a side hustle as well. And it works out well because many of the partners within the community, um, they're now matrix partners as well. Rocking. Which it's, it, it's apropos for our subject this week, which is perception and reality in industry 4.0, which we, we did a similar topic know, a couple of months ago, but we didn't really get into what we didn't do was bring somebody um, from the community on to have the conversation with. So, um, real quick, Matrix is located in Ohio. Is that yeah, right? Miami, Ohio? Yeah, right, right outside of Toledo. Yeah, right. Um, I, I've I've heard of them. I do know of them, and I think we have a, a partnership with Matrix now. Yeah, we so, do. There's uh, yeah. several co pursuits we're doing. So, I, I should clarify. I am part of the uh, MI team. That's our manufacturing intelligence. Um, that's head up by Jim Mansfield, and then my counterpart. Um, for some of the more traditional technology that's used, uh, that is John Lee. Um, so then there's a group of people within that MI division, and we're looking to both digitally transform as a system integrator, as well as the clients that we currently have. Rocking, man. Awesome. Yeah. So Good for stuff. those, some announcements for the community real quick. So you guys may notice that the, the, the format of the podcast has changed a little bit. So um, the... What we're going to be doing is each week we're going to be inviting a member of the community on to co-host with me. And rather than doing an interview, we'll do introductions and and then really we're just going to we're going to cover a topic. And ju just the way that we always have, except the the member of the community who's co-hosting is going to participate in that discussion. So you're not just hearing my perspectives or what I've experienced or what my opinions are, but you're going to hear it from other members of the community as well. And today, Dave is graciously agreed to co-host with us. Um, <clears throat> and the topic is perception and reality in industry 4.0. And we're going to really talk about it from three primary prisms. Uh, so the, the end user, the OEM and um, the systems integrator. So um, if you guys have any questions, please make sure you include them in the chat. Josh will make sure he keeps, keeps an eye on the chat and uh, we'll ask him, we'll answer him as we go. We do have a couple of carryover questions from last week, uh, one from David McGraw and the other one from Richard Shaw that we are going to answer once we get towards the end. But I've got a couple of announcements I want to get to, and then we'll just get into the 
the topic. So number one, you guys may remember that uh, a few weeks ago, I, I spoke at IOT Texas. Uh, I think it's a monthly thing. Um, you guys can go on Meetup and look up um, IOT Texas as a group. They do a, they do a couple hour session where they have a speaker come in every month uh, over in Richardson. And uh, I spoke last month. Uh, and this month, Michael Brown, formerly of AWS, but he's now with RTS. He is um, he is uh, he's going to be speaking this week, this Thursday. Um, I wanted to be there, but I'm my second announcement is going to explain why I won't be there. So, uh, but the the subject of his speech is going to be IT skills for the OT Pro, how to use cloud data lakes, etc., to solve manufacturing problems. Um, I I'll drop the link to the event itself in the YouTube chat. Actually, let me do that right now. And because I didn't give it to, to uh, uh, Josh to do. Um, if you guys haven't had the opportunity to listen to Michael Brown speak, um, you're missing out. You really are. He, he's, he's taught a couple of, two, I think he did two sessions for us in the mastermind program, right? He did yeah. both two cloud sessions. Yeah, they were awesome. Yeah, he's world-class solutions architect brilliant dude, lots and lots and lots of plant floor experience. In fact, his whole career started on the plant floor and he moved all the way up into solutions architecture for Amazon Web Services. Everything that we're going to be talking about over the next three months in mastermind and mentorship is all centered around machine learning, artificial intelligence, unlocking the power and data. This would be a great session for you to go to. So um, number two, um, a little personal stuff, the why I'm in New York, I didn't plan to be here. My, uh, my father had a stroke, um, on Sunday and, um, and thankfully he's, he, he's doing well. Um, looks like there, there may be some long-term, uh, he can't really speak, um, at all, but, uh, I would appreciate, uh, any prayers. I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the power of prayer. I've reached out to everyone who's on my prayer list. I just wanted to inquire, uh, implore the community. For those of you who are believers, if you could add my dad to your prayer list, um, at least for the next few weeks, that would be great. His name is Jerry Ostrander. Um, you know, he is, he is, he adopted me when I was seven and he, I, he is the reason I am who I am. So, uh, be great if you guys could extend some prayers for my dad. So, um, last three announcements, uh, monthly mentorship calls. So for those of you who are in mentorship, um, we have the monthly call that one hour call with all the mentees every second Friday, um, that the next session is June 10th. So that's next Friday, nine o'clock central mastermind. We have the call, the monthly call, which is about a three hour call. That's every third Friday. And our next session is June 17th. I'm going to be, we're going to be publishing some background, um, information for both the mentees and the mastermind members in the discord server, um, some content that we'd like for you guys to go over. Um, so a couple, couple of things that you guys should read and a couple of videos to watch, um, before we get into these sessions this month so that everybody comes in kind of prayer primed, shouldn't take you more than, uh, 20 to 30 additional minutes to get through it. Um, so I'll be, we'll be publishing that stuff in discord. And then the last thing is and part of the reason, one of the things Dave's going to be talking about today is the advisory board. Uh, you guys may or may not know, but starting in, I think it was in December, we launched, right, Dave? Uh, yeah, yeah, about then. 
so starting in December of this year, we, we had grown to a point, uh, we sort of realized that I think last September, but we had grown to a point where um, it, it became apparent that we needed, we needed a, a group um, to provide, to really speak for the community um, in terms of, you know, the quality of the curriculum that we're providing, the quality of these sessions, are we covering the topics and videos that people want to hear about um, and any other ideas to improve the community? And we started this community advisory board, the industry 4.0 advisory board uh, in December. Um, that board is made up of, it's a subcommittee and I think it's 14 people. It's somewhere between uh, 11 and 14. Yeah. Well, six right now, um, only because Cheryl was on the board, but now that she's part of 4.0, um, we decided to move her into a liaison role. So she'll act as the liaison go between, between the, the subcommittee, the advisory board and 4.0 solutions. Perfect. Um, so our, at our meeting on Friday, that's actually one of the items on the agenda is talking about a replacement for Cheryl. So the, thanks. So the advisory board, there's two meetings uh, for the advisory board. The first one is for the subcommittee, which is all the members of the community who are on that subcommittee and uh, where Dave Schultz and Mari Ushigawa co-chair that, that committee. Mm -hmm. They meet with that team of the first Friday of every month. That's this Friday is the next session. And then the following Wednesday, we have a board meeting with 4.0 Solutions where the chairs, David Schultz and Mario Ushigawa, meet with myself, uh, Josh, Cheryl, uh, Travis. I think there's eight or nine of us in those meetings where we basically, Dave sends us an agenda, we go through, we uh, we discuss those items, we make motions, we second those motions, and we either approve or deny whatever the recommendations are that come from the advisory board. Mm -hmm. So with that, Dave, so do you want to give a, a little more background on the advisory board, what its purpose, and primarily how can community members get involved, and more importantly, how do they benefit from the yeah. advisory board? Yeah, so um, the background is, and I guess I want to, since we're talking about myths and reality here, you know, we are not, the advisory board is not just a group of Walker Reynolds and 4.0 and Intellic fanboys. Um, we were all attracted to the community independently, as uh, I like to say, Cheryl said, it was, you know, we found our tribe and we just all started coming in and talking about all the technology and and some of what was happening within manufacturing and 4.0 and all the, you know, the, the various topics that exist there. Um, there's certainly been dissension, uh, dissension amongst the ranks. There are things that we, we talk a lot about um, within the, the good to great. It's sort of we come together and we talk and we hammer it out and we get things figured out and then we make those recommendations. So really, the advisory board started off. There's a group of us for about the last year and a half that meet every other Saturday, and that's still ongoing. I believe you were on one of those calls at one point, Walker. Mm -hmm. um, and about last fall, so you mentioned September, October, you started realizing there was a need for, well, we're going to have to do something different. And a number of our Saturday calls were always, boy, what'd you guys think of the last session, whether it was the mentorship or mastermind? And it just seemed to be missing what it is that we were doing. So uh, Kevin Jones, or I like to call him Dr. Jones, uh, put together an email, sent it over to you. It did a fantastic job of distilling down some of the things like here's what's, and we use some of the DTMA language of what, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? What should we do? And that's really the, the genesis for what came to be now as the advisory board. Um, 
So our, our fundamental role is that we are here to act as the voice of the community. So as, as you now have, and I don't remember how many members are in the Discord and, and that, it's significant. There's just no way it can get managed through the 4.0 um, community or the people that work for 4.0. So how do we provide that to distill things down and capture some of those common themes that are there of, boy, this is working great, this is not working great type yeah. of thing. So as a result, we act as that voice, and then we make recommendations on what the topics are going to be. So it's the, the what is going to be included within the 4.0, the sessions, whether it's the mentorship or the mastermind. Um, we also make recommendations on the how. How are we going to deliver this? So what topics belong within the weekly Q&A? What topics belong within mentorship? What's in mastermind? And what can we just generally handle through the uh, conversations that exist within the Discord? And we decide what makes the most sense. And, you know, even if there needs to be a special session, we'll say, guys, we need to do a special session. That didn't work out very well. Um, so we'll do that. Um, and then, of course, based on what's happening within the industry. So if there's, say, an acquisition or there's some new technology. Yeah, there was a big one this week. Yeah. <laughs> a huge one. A huge yeah. one. Yeah. So we, we would say, guys, we, we need to stop what we're doing now. I, I realized the next plan was, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Maybe we need to move back to uh, you know, some other topic type of thing. So we'll certainly want to pivot if those things are needed. And of course, that's part of the 4.0 being very uh, you know, um, agile in what it is that we're doing. We want to deliver those solutions in an agile framework. Um, and then, of course, it's accountability. So there's sometimes things like, yep, I'll do this, I'll do it, I'll do it. Well, guess what? We're now people that are going to hold uh, or we're going to hold people's feet to the fire and make sure that those types of things get done. So, you know, really that's our primary focus within the advisory board is to make sure that the investment people are making, mentorship, mastermind, or even the one hour weekly or in the Discord, they're getting value from whatever it is that investment looks like, so. Excellent. I like to say it this, the <clears throat> so the the email that Kevin Jones sent in December, which he, he sent an email on behalf of the, you know, a, a, say a subset of 20, 12 to 20 members mm -hmm. of the community. I like to call it uh, the gap analysis. So we knew we would add a community advisory board. We didn't call it a community advisory board in the beginning. Um, when we were originally talking about it, when we first were hype, when we were first putting together a strategy about August of last year, we were saying we were going to need to add a, um, a steering committee is what originally what we wanted to call it. But we were, going to add, we were going to need to add a community steering committee. We knew what many of the gaps that Kevin included in that email. So for these guys, this advisory board came from, hey, guys, here's what we're, we're experts at. Here, here is what the community industry or 4.0 solutions are experts at. Here are the things they're trying to achieve. Here are some of the expertise that's missing. The community has some of the expertise that you guys need. We need to create this committee. We need to create this board that's going to be able to A, number one, collect the ideas and B, help implement those ideas in the community. So there's a whole host of other things that are going to be happening. We're going to be leaning on community members to shoot content, participate in the weekly podcast. Uh, so um, think of it this way. Instead of the videos that show up on the 4.0 Solutions YouTube channel always being Walker in front of the camera or, or you know, entering somebody from 4.0 Solutions, we're going to be putting together a plan for other members of the community to shoot content in their area of expertise to include in the 4.0 Solutions YouTube channel. Uh, another thing we're creating, um, people who have already completed step one are going to be 
um, mentoring members of the community who are going through step one. So, um, you know, cohort leaders is what we're, we're calling them. So there's a lot of really great ideas that have come out of the advisory board with the last thing on the advisory board would be this, Dave, people who want to leverage the advisory board to get more information or make a suggestion or whatever, what mechanism should they go through to, uh, to communicate to you guys. So right now, Discord uh, is the best way to do it. So if there's questions, if there's concerns, needs, you know, topics, uh, those types of things. So you mentioned it's Mario Ishigawa. Uh, it's me, David Schultz. Um, you also have Matthew Paris, Brendan O'Reilly. Um, I'm going to, uh, Taylor Turner, um, Ali Ahmad. And there's one other and it's killing me. Um, uh, who else Cheryl. is there? Help me out here. <laughs> you think I would have written it down, uh, but there's, like I said, there's six of us currently, and then there'll be a seventh. So I, I know I missed somebody um, and I'll, it'll pop up. Okay. So just reach out to us directly uh, DM. Um, I'm on discord every day. Um, so I'm not always participating in the chats just depends on what workload is. But um, if you send me a message, I will respond. Let me, let's, let's talk about this acquisition I referenced. We hadn't planned on talking about it, but um, so Broadcom, agreed to acquire VMware for $61 billion last week. Okay. Um, and, and um, everyone should, I mean, the reason it's important, like we use, I think most people or you use VMware for their virtualization software. There are other options out there, but I, I know that most engineers use VMware, whether you're, if you're a Mac guy, you're using fusion, right? If you're use if you're a windows guy, you're using workstation, right? VMware workstation mm -hmm. to create your virtual machines. It's obviously a huge, this is a big deal. 61, first off, a $61 billion is a, is a huge acquisition in cash and stock. But what's more important is, what's more important is Broadcom, who is an IT company, and, and they have a history of just acquiring best in class software solutions, but they want to be, they want to become the, the, like the number one IT services and products company on the planet. That's their goal. That's their mission statement. Um, they decided to acquire VMware. And I think the biggest thing here is this. They have chosen to operate under the VMware name. So Broadcom bought VMware for $61 billion, And now they're going to operate as VMware, Broadcom is. And the interesting thing about this that I think is so profound is this is a literal merger between OT and IT because VMware is the de facto virtualization platform for operational technology, but it really isn't in IT. Okay. In, in I, IT doesn't pick VMware as their primary virtualization software. VMware is really more, it, it's it's much more popular in the desktop arena, engineers on the plant floor, people on the OT side of the business, and Broadcom generally has operated exclusively on the in the IT sphere. This acquisition is Broadcom converging OT and IT for their business, and the decision to operate as VMware versus operating as Broadcom indicates that Broadcom has plans to make a much bigger splash in OT software. Now, 
you wouldn't describe VMware as OT software, but in practice, in manufacturing, in what it is that we do, VMware is an OT solution. It's not an IT solution. It really isn't. No, but I would love to hear your take. I don't know how much you've read on the acquisition. I know you were aware that the acquisition took place, but uh, do, do, what, what's your take on that acquisition? So whenever I see M&A, I'm always reminded of a, the cover of The Economist back in the mid-80s that had a couple of camels on it. And you can imagine what was going on with the two camels. And it's one of those, I think there's a lot of cautious optimism around when we start getting into M&A, a merger and acquisition, is that the idea sounds really great. How does that work in practice? And so now you're talking about this IT company, Broadcom, this OT, if you will, company of VMware. What does that M&A look like when we're already challenged with this ITOT convergence? It's one of those common uh, phrases in lexicon, much like, you know, 4.0, IOT, it's ITOT convergence. So, you know, it becomes, what is that going to look like? It, it's, I'm, I'm optimistic in the sense that, you know, most people think of ITOT convergence as we're going to have our IT data and our OT data, and those are going to somehow exist together. But really, to me, it's also that much like digital transformation, it's a strategy, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's how does this go to our ITOT convergence? Are we bringing people together? Are OT people you know, understanding IT or IT people understanding OT data? There's an opportunity for now all of a sudden these two disparate groups coming together and, and really leading that, that charge and being a champion for it. It's so. going to be, it's going to be interesting to see for me. It's like, you know, every year I spend, you know, over the last 10 years, every year I spend $400 on a windows VMware license. And I spend another $400 on a Mac VMware license. And then whatever we have in terms of our enterprise licensing with VMware, VMware plays a huge role in our, in our metal virtualization. So that is mm -hmm. anything that's any virtual machines, um, any infrastructure, virtual infrastructure we're creating on desktops, um, laptops, you know, portable OT devices. They really the stuff on the, on the plant floor is VMware. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but when we, once we get to the cloud, we're really more focused, like, uh, you know, we're, it's hyper V or it's, it, you know, it's, it's not, we're not, we don't use VMware at the IT layer. We just use it at the OT layer. And then, you know, we use the connections between the virtual machines we've created in our VMware software with the connection to, and we, we send that data to virtual machines that are generated in the Hyper-V ecosystem, right? So the interesting thing is, is going to be, what does is, what is Broadcom do with VMware is is their focus going to be make VMware more of a because if you if you look at the way VMware describes themselves right their CEO I can't remember his name but he you know he really tries to put VMware up as a you know they've been transforming IT he uses that that term for a couple of decades I I really don't see it that way I I see that they've been transforming OT from my perspective mm -hmm. for the last couple of decades they've made digitization on the plant floor expedient because it is much easier to have one physical server that IT owns on the plant floor and I create 20 virtual servers that I own within the physical server that IT owns. And VMware's solution is the way that I make that a reality 
as opposed to with IT, where they've got physical servers that are in the data center that they own and software running on those servers that they own and virtual machines that they are responsible for spinning up and managing the resources across those physical servers. Yeah, Ragu is his name. Thank you, Annabelle. Ragu Raguram is the CEO of VMware. I see VMware, and I think most people agree that VMware is really an OT solution. And the interesting thing is going to be, what does Broadcom decide to do with that? Is the idea that they're going to chase the IT clientele, or are they going to chase, or can, are they going to continue to expand in the OT space? And and that's, I mean, in, in, in their decision, strategic decision, will play um, um, play a huge role. Uh, Dwayne, I want to answer Dwayne's question here, Zach, or Josh. Um, Docker, question mark, only on the plant floor. Absolutely not. Docker is um, full stack. It, it, um, Docker is a solution for deploying um, containerized, pre-tested infrastructure everywhere. Dave, your, your take on Docker. Yeah, so I was just going to ask around the Docker versus Kubernetes is that I see Docker more on the plant floor. So a product that I was really optimistic around, uh, you know, IO Hub, you know, unfortunately they're they're going away, which is that's a that's a huge miss from a market standpoint. But huge, huge. I find more Docker at the, at the plant floor. And that's one of the questions or one of the thoughts I had around this whole VMware piece is, you know, VMs are great, but what about the, the containers? And you're starting to see a lot more Docker showing up on the plant floor. Um, but Kubernetes from that IT standpoint of, you know, now we're talking some, you know, I, I would call it Docker on steroids, if you will, of, you know, two different you know, types of technologies that are used differently um, for those. But yeah, that's, that's really the, is that going to be the miss in this acquisition is that you're, you're really buying sort of a legacy technology of, of the VMware instead of going to a, a Docker, you take a look at some of the emergent, you know, the technology platforms that we used here, it's uh, you can always just pull down a Docker and you're up and running. I agree. And I'll say, I'll say this, that right now, the most common implementation of containers, Docker containers is a container launched uh, many containers deployed within uh, on the same physical piece of hardware uh but not in a virtualized um environment so the one remember one of the limitations one of the advantages of virtual machines for the community is you can run many different operating systems on the same hardware in vms a, a docker container is is you can run many Docker containers on one kernel and the kernel is unique to the operating system. Mm -hmm. So there is a role for virtualized machines and Docker containers working together. Right now, the implementation primarily at 99% of the use cases that I see are containers running on physical hardware. Um, so I'm running a single Linux implementation with many, many, many containers. I have my web server in this container. I have my ignition instance in that container. And I'm just deploying pop, 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 you know, with a single command line to the same piece of physical hardware. I may run four commands, deploy four containers, and I've got Mosquito, I've got Ignition. <laughs> you know, I have my individual um, isolated environments running on the same kernel. The, I think real power users are going to be using virtualized machines with containers 
container environments run in, run inside those virtualized machines, which we don't see really that often. It's uh, in many cases, it's either, or it's yeah. I'm, I'm picking one or I'm picking the other. I want to answer Mario and then Zach or um, Zach Wooten, but Walker, do you think VMware has more revenue on the OT than the IT side? So this is, that's a really, it's a great question. And I, I did a lot of research over the last week on where VMware's revenue comes from. So in terms of what they report to shareholders, right? The, the, like what they report in their financial statements, the vast majority of revenue comes from the IT side. But that IT side isn't the important part. It's the, it's the, it's not who paid for it. It's where was it implemented? That's really what matters. So the IT department, me buying a VMware license may come from the IT budget. Okay. It may come out of the IT. It's not coming out of my OPEX. It may be coming out of the IT budget. What, what matters is, is that that license is deployed on the, is, is deployed by me as an engineer on the plant floor. And here's the, what, what I did was I, I looked at licenses, total number of licenses, two things that VMware reports, they report their total number of licenses by product. And then they also have a, I think they call it duplicate licensing. It's, it's how many people have more than one license. A person has more than one license. And what I would, what I was able to ascertain based on, you know, what I'm, what I think is, is that people who have more than one license, individuals have more than one license. Those are people on the OT side of your business. And it's not on the IT side of the business. And they have a massive number of, um, the, the, the average number of licenses per person is actually pretty high. I think it's like 3.1 or something. So that tells me that while IT is probably paying for things, it's coming through their budgets, it's being implemented by operational technology. But that's a really good question. And then Zach Wooten, containers are growing as people learn, 100%. I mean, and I mean, what I want to encourage people, and we will get to this this year, Kubernetes is 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 a toolkit we will be learning in mentorship and mastermind um, in mentorship more towards it'll be right towards the end of the year if you look at the way the curriculum is laid out right now but i encourage anyone to just spend watch a one hour video uh, i can't remember the guy's name there's a really good youtube video um he's that engineer from texas he actually lives in dallas i think he used to he used to work for ti or something he, he did a really really cool kubernetes boot camp on youtube um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll include it in the, the comments of this video, but, um, all right. Any other questions on that piece or do you want to contribute anything else on that day? No, I, I guess one other comment is I know when people are doing their step training and they're spinning up their VM, they, they, I use VMware because those are the tools your clients are going to be using. The reason why I chose VMware over Hyper-V or the free ones of when I go out to deploy solutions, what am I likely to run into? So uh, just get it. Now they have the player, which I believe does allow you to um, yep. get inside and, and work with VMs. Um, or allegedly, you can go to eBay and pick up a license for five bucks. Uh, D Dwayne, you're correct. Network Chuck. So the guy's name is Network Chuck. And uh, you guys can, Dwayne, will you look up the video? He does like a one hour Kubernetes thing. And will you drop the link of that into our chat? That'd be cool if you, you could do that or somebody could. All right, let's talk about um, Industry 4.0 perception and reality. So we did this a few months ago. 
what I really want to do is I want to I want to talk to you specifically about perception and reality and start with this. And that is what is, in your opinion, either from the OEM end user or systems integrator perspective, it doesn't matter, pick one of the three. What is the most common misperception that you see in one of those three groups when it comes to industry 4.0? What is the most, the one that you've seen the most, the most common misperception? Wow. Um, I, I wish we would have had this conversation ahead of getting on, on the live uh, stream for that. Um, I, I First one that popped to mind is that I think and this goes back to some early conversations two, three years ago, is that the idea of Industry 4.0 is taking all of my plant floor data and pushing it into the cloud. And then we're going to build some kind of magic dashboard with that. And so from a technology standpoint, you talk about that digital thread. But when I've had conversations around uh, a lot of what that, that information that's on the plant floor, it's, oh, yeah, we're already taking all that data and we're pushing it in the cloud um, and as Arlen Nipper likes to say, well, you didn't really solve your problem. You just moved your problem. So I, I would start from, from that standpoint, just from a manufacturing standpoint of um, it, it's not just putting your information in the, the cloud. It's actually bringing in and adding more data points that exist on the plant floor, providing context as you move through the technology stack. So it's not just knowing its process state, its process health, its asset health all of those combined together and then using cloud and, and AI ML enabling technologies to solve the problem. It's uh, there's this really good slide I ran into. I think somebody met, sent it to me on LinkedIn or something. And it's basically at the top of the slide. Well, I'll, I will, I'll share it in another video. I'll do a video on it, but it on the top of the slide, it says what companies think artificial intelligence looks like. Okay. And it's a box with just three circles. You got data, you got artificial intelligence, you got value. So it says, you know, what is what do, what do companies think AI looks like? Now, remember, AI is the big is the big circle in the Venn diagram and machine learning is inside of AI. Artificial intelligence is just, you know, using computers to make decisions, right? Okay. That's really what AI is, right? So at the top of this slide, it's data, artificial intelligence, value. And then at the bottom of the slide, it's what it actually is, right? And there is data, data science, value, data, data engineering, modeling, operationalization, uh, constraints, both legal, ethical, security, historical, selection, sourcing, synthesis of data, the exploration, cleaning, normalizing, and feature engineering of data engineering, the model selection, training, evaluation, and tuning of modeling, the registration, deployment, monitoring, and retraining in terms of operalization for value. One of the things that we don't talk about from a technical perspective very often, and it goes exactly to your point, is we don't talk about why. What we do is we address what the gaps are, the top common misperceptions, and then we try to engineer out the misperception. And we've tried to do that with the unified namespace. So all of those things and the what it actually is for artificial intelligence, right? So if it's data, data science, and value, and in, under data, we have to select, source, and synthesize. And under data engineering, we have to explore, clean, normalize, and uh, engineer features. And under modeling, we have to select, and we got to train, we got to evaluate, and we got to tune. 
And under op operationalization, you have to register, deploy, monitor, and retrain. And that all within specific constraints, right? What we try to do is we say, well, the, the why is it that artificial intelligence actually artificial intelligence actually is this way? And the answer is because of the way people approach the acquisition and storage and augmentation of data. So what we try to do is change that so that the what it actually is in terms of artificial intelligence can be data AI value, right? Um, I, I, I had no idea what your answer would be. I'm glad that's what the answer was. We didn't, I didn't ask you. I didn't, reason why I didn't ask you beforehand was I, I really do want to hear your answer right off the top of the top of the head. Yeah, um, it, uh, it reminds me of an article. So I'm, I'm a big fan of South Park and is the show always says nobody should ever watch that show, but there's an episode that's called the underpants gnomes. And what these gnomes are going to do is they're going to steal underpants and make profit. And as you're watching the show, you realize there's this middle piece, which is exactly what this AI is. We're going to push all this data to cloud and we're going to make profit or we're going to have these these capabilities. And there's this big middle piece that, that's missing in there of, OK, so how exactly do you do that? So that's a lot always my uh, analogy for for what we're trying to do here. My my most common the most common misperception. I mean, it would be really hard for me to just pick one because there's a lot of them, uh -huh. but I would say if there's one that I just wanted to make sure I included in this video so that if somebody ever watched it, they'd go, oh, okay, I learned from this. Um, it's really going to boil down to two, so I'm going to give two. So the, the first one is the misperception that um, only the data I know I need is valuable. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right? Because the, 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 the reality is all data matters. Even the stuff you're not going to use for 18 years. It all matters. But the common misperception is only the stuff I know I need is what matters. And if I could convince, I mean, if I could just snap my fingers and change anything about the way people think in our industry, it would be that, that every single data point matters and every transition matters. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to collect every transition on every data point, but that has to be your goal, right? It, you, you may have to make the decision it's going to cost too much to buffer every transition of this 120 hertz signal, okay, and, and send a payload every second or five seconds. It may cost too much. We're just going to have to live with 30 of the 120 or the last one of the 120 and only send one every second. But the goal needs to be everything. And then I would say the second one is the importance of agility, the whole concept of what I want is a function of what I know and digital transformation is about me getting smarter. So what I know is going to grow. Therefore, what I want is going to change at the, at, at the same rate as my brains, my intelligence, mm -hmm. right? Um, Annabelle, one of the 4.0 solution characteristics of IIoT requirements, don't make assumptions about how data will be consumed. Yes, 100%. And that came out of that misperception. Yeah. Right. Um, if you go back to factory floor 20 years ago, we'll talk about heart variables. So you have your PV, then you have your three others that come through. And the promise of that, that was those heart values that were going to come out of there. Somehow we're going to create value in the reality 20 years later is all we're really doing is taking a heart instrument and we're just capturing the analog value out of it. And we're not using anything else, you know, save for, you know, a few isolated cases. So 
it would make sense. Now, all of a sudden you're saying, oh, well, we're going to put all this data out there. We, we don't even use the three other things that we could get. So why would I use these 10,000 things I could get? It just, it's never gets used. And then of course, there's the idea of how, boy, data is expensive because every time we, and this just came up on a call a couple of weeks ago, it's, <laughs> boy, uh, you know, unlimited tags is great, but when we get in at other systems, we're going to have to pay for that. And it's, there, there's plenty of ways that you can mitigate that, but on the same token, what's the value of not capturing that? So um, it's storage is cheap. Yes, agreed, hundred percent. I want to. Mario chimed in here in three point oh. The most common error I saw is when people get a supervisor control and data acquisition system, and then they start thinking that since it has a lot of data, they can use it as their historian and analytics for other departments, right? This is a, and Dwayne said, hey, this is still very much alive, Mario. Nothing has changed and lots of customers. So let's talk real quick about how should that be implemented. The data that is acquired by the, the SCADA system can be used for many other departments. But you have to understand that the data you collect and you visualize in a SCADA system is oftentimes limited by what you need in that functional capability. So if I only need to see a temperature every 60 seconds, I may only be able to see it every 60 seconds in the SCADA system, right? But if that, that temperature is something I need to see it at a much higher resolution for the quality department, it is not appropriate, okay? It's not appropriate to use the, the rate of collection in the SCADA system to provide analytics for quality. That's the first piece. The second piece is this, and Mario touches on it. Supervisor control and data acquisition is mission critical, right? You don't, you don't do analysis in a mission critical tool. Supervisor control and data acquisition is about monitoring and controlling plants, large areas of equipment. It is, it's, it's, it's HMI on steroids. It's all HMIs aggregated in one place in either one area or in one facility. And it's meant, this is why supervisory is the word in there. You don't see supervisory in human machine interface. You only see it at the SCADA layer. It's because it's meant for supervisors and managers to monitor and control systems. And that is mission critical. And you shouldn't be doing data analytics for support departments through a mission critical tool. That's what Mario is talking about. That doesn't mean you can't use the data that you acquire, but you do that through a common infrastructure, not through the pane of glass that is mission critical. But anyway, Mario, once we get you on here to co-host, we're definitely coming back to to that comment there. (laughs) All right, Dave, let me ask you this. So I, somebody asked me this the other day, they said, um, I, I, I'm looking for, um, um, I'm looking for an elevator pitch for OEMs, end users, and systems integrators for why digital transformation matters, why Industry 4.0 matters. And so they asked me the question, if I'm going to do the elevator pitch to an OEM, for example, what does the OEM need to know about Industry 4.0? Like, if you're going to, if I've only got 30 seconds in an elevator to talk to some OEM about Industry 4.0 and your digital strategy, what do I need to tell them? 
So I, I'm, I'm going to go to the data. And I, I remember having this conversation, boy, five, six, seven years ago about trying to do these OEM solutions. And there's, you know, I'm, I'm going to reference the economist again, but Microsoft, I mean, these, these leading companies were telling OEMs, guys, people are not just interested in this, this, this point solution that, okay, here's, I'm going to bend and cut some metal. Here's your solution. You know, good luck. You know, there, there's a revenue, it's a non-product based revenue stream that you can get after and actually start charging the customer for that. People are willing to pay for it because they want to know. I talked earlier about process health, process status, asset health. It's the idea of there's a lot of information that's there. So fast forward to the elevator pitch. It's do you realize how valuable the data that our machine produces is to both our clients as well as us? So I can predict process outcomes. I can predict um, asset or machine downtimes. I can also take a look at warranty. Um, so pump somebody didn't use the machine correctly. I can say, oh, you guys didn't do this. Or it's it's an opportunity to explore. If you guys have talked a lot about Tesla, it gets better over time. Here's an opportunity for us to evaluate what's happening. So the elevator pitch is, is it's the data. Do you realize how valuable this is to both us and the end users? So we did the, we did a tour. I, I didn't even, I totally forgot about this and I wasn't even going to bring it up, but you, when you brought that up, it, it made me think of this. And I, I, this is something I should say at this point in the podcast. Last week we did a tour for a major OEM and they had a brand, have a brand new facility here in Dallas. And it's sort of like their showroom. Right. And, uh, it, um, Dave, you see uh, Annabelle's question there. You yeah, said, oh, pro pro yeah, process status, process yep. health, and then so, asset health. Yep. Um, so we do this tour of this state-of-the-art facility. Okay, and it's and it's they basically built. Um, I'm going to say 20 machines. Uh, there were 20 cells, OEM cells, that did various things. Most of them had robots or vision systems in them, so they were doing you know, pick and place. They were doing 3D vision examples and stuff. It was basically a showroom, right? And when I'm walking through here, I mean, these are brilliant engineers, super, super, super smart dudes. I mean, and there's, and uh, the guy who was, who was giving us the tour, um, again, super, super smart guy. There was a gap between, like in this, in this company, they're true believers. They, they understand the value of industry Ford. I know the whole deal. There was a massive gap between what I was thinking walking through that showroom and what they were presenting to us while we were walking through that showroom. I kept asking all these questions about underlying data models and open architecture and, you know, how are you unlocking the potential of the data and this equipment, right? For example, they didn't have, they, they did not have data acquisition anywhere. So they didn't have all the cells going to a common namespace so that I could look at the data across processes or anything. And none of that. Moreover, it didn't occur to them that it was important to have it. Uh -huh. So then we, we moved over to this. The, and, and, and by the way, I don't want this to make it sound like I'm disparaging this group in any way, shape or form. They, they're early in their digital transformation journey. It's why they invited us over there to take a look. But I, the whole time, I, was, I, was, I didn't care about the Cobot applic application for pick and place. I mean, motion is motion is motion. Yeah, you know, that's just that stuff's not hard. It's e it's easy stuff. It really is. Um, what I care about is being able to correlate something that happens on the cell with the cobot that's doing pick and place with the cell 
that's doing 3D vision um, in, in, in a cobot application. And how I can regulate cycle times in both of those two robots so that I don't need to build up any surge capacity between robot A and robot B. What I can do is have cell A run at the rate that cell B needs me to run so that it acts as a continuous flow operation and I don't have to offload any search capacity. It's that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Sharing data between equipment. But we went over to, there was another section where they had probably the most impressive stuff that we saw there, which was these, uh, they call them MRVs, mobile roving vehicles, right? So these are, these are not AGVs, which, you know, AGVs basically are guided. You program them, they stay on a line on the floor, right? An MRV can has, gets free reign of the plant floor and it can, you know, an MRV can go over it. You can place some boxes on it and tell it to go over to the palletizer and it'll drive over there and it'll avoid objects and all that kind of shit. Right. Mm -hmm. And the first question I asked them, when we were over there. I said this, and they're an OEM, they build these robots. And I said, are you, I asked them to show me how it is they train the robot to what the layout of the plant floor is when they sell it to a customer. And they showed me that. And then I said, are you currently collecting the data on, you know, in 3D of these plant floors and then making recommendations to your customers on how they should lay out their equipment more effectively? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're the one who's collecting the data they need to optimize the way they lay out the facility, even the cobots. Right. So even the cobots that are doing pick and place off conveyors and putting stuff on on um, pallets, you can run you can run models that will tell you exactly where that pallet should be placed for optimal cycle time. Right. You can do that. And I asked them, I said, are you currently do that? And they said it never even occurred to us. Mm -hmm. It never even occurred to us. And that's exactly what you're talking about. You know, yeah, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's always, well, our clients aren't asking for this, but then you talk <laughs> to the clients and it's, well, you know, our OEMs aren't providing that type of thing. That's right. Or exactly. It's, it's we're in a competitive bid situation. If we add on some value add, it's, it's going to kill us. We don't have, you know, the tools, resources. I mean, it's, it's, I still find after this, you know, six, seven years later, you still have the same litany where, you know, there's no way they're going to let us in on the network type of thing. So I think I it's, wanna, it's getting better. Go ahead. Uh, Blazo, uh, it's Blazo Fatso. Um, he said, hey, Walker, uh, I'd like to suggest that you do training on PLC and SCADA. I'm strongly convinced that learning these two automations that parts of the stack would be taught well by you. Um, so the, the answer is on that specific point, we do, we do teach SCADA on some level, but it's, it's, uh, we really mo focus a lot more on data transformation and visualization and analysis, as opposed to the supervisory control and data acquisition component. Like we, we talk about ISA 101 and L1, L2 and L3 screens and isometric views and all that kind of stuff. And the difference between a faceplate and this type of model and that type of model, right? We do teach that in mentorship, but we don't go in with, from the perspective of we're teaching people how to develop SCADA. We really are saying we're teaching them how to use this SCADA platform to do data acquisition, trans transformation, modeling, and analysis of data in a common infrastructure. So, but to your point on the PLC side, there's a, a publisher that reached out. I mean, we, I think we just had this meeting like two weeks ago that's asked us to uh, help write a textbook 
on PLC programming for Industry 4.0. And we are considering doing that. And, and, and part of the deal was if we do do that, we, uh, they have to support us developing accompanying videos um, for the textbook. So right now, the reason that I don't teach it, the reason I'm not focused on teaching PLC and SCADA is because there are people out there who do it. And I don't see that as the biggest gap right now. The biggest gap is edge driven report by exception, lightweight, open architecture architectures in, and we're teaching the value of that. But I, I get your point. And, and, I, and by the way, I agree with you. If I had more time, we'd absolutely be doing it and we probably will, but I, I, you know, I appreciate the feedback. Um, all right. Number two, Dave. So we, we did what, what do OEMs need to know? We'll do this one and then we'll answer the couple of questions that we had. Uh, do you want to do what, what do you want to do? What do manufacturers need to do? Or do you want to do what do integrators need to know? Let's take a look at integrators. I, yeah. I think this is a really great topic. Um, and I, I hinted at the answer a little bit earlier. And this was something that, you know, 25 years ago when I started my career, you know, the, the whole goal was we're trying to solve a problem. And of course, I, you know, I worked for a manufacturer's representative and I had my line card and I was looking at an application with a client. And I said, you know, honestly, yeah, I could do this, but somebody else is probably better at it. So I reached out to this person that I'd met and I introduced him and then he came in and solved the problem. And I got hammered for that because, oh, they're going to take all your business. It was the mentality of, you know, you have the sandbox and you need to want to do everything you can to keep your competitor out. And one of the features of, of 4.0 was this whole idea of collaboration. It's part of the core values of, of David Schultz and what it is that I do is, well, and I was confused because it's like, well, I was here to solve a problem and I solved the problem and maybe I didn't get paid for it, but I'm pretty sure that's going to pay itself off in spades. And it did because the person and I had a very good working relationship from then on and, and we did a lot of just stuff together. So fast forward 25 years. The big thing that I think integrators need to look at, and you've talked about this before in, in your you know, SI 4.0 video, is we need to understand that there's a, that we need to, as companies based in the U.S., we need to learn how to work together. So 12 years ago, my strategy uh, was around reliability. It's, it's helping American manufacturers develop and execute strategies for their reliability. Well, now it's just, you know, now you can tack on reliability digital transformation. So from a, an SI standpoint, the, the, the thing that, that needs to be understood is we need to collaborate to work together to solve a lot of these problems because all of us is smarter than any of us. And there may be something that Intellic has seen. There may be something. So, you know, we do work with uh, Kevin Jones at Ectobox. So something that, that Ectobox has seen, um, there, there are some others that, boy, we, we really have a robust solution we can come up with and, and do that together. So yeah, I, I just can't say it enough. You're not competitors, you're collaborators. That's you know, right. sometimes you're going to be competing, but at the end of the day, we're going to be helping American manufacturers digitally transform. And that competition's good for the client, right? Because mm -hmm. what what it does is it, you know, if you have no competition, I say this all the time. If you have no competition, you have no reason to reconsider your pricing structure, your project management strategy. You have no reason to reconsider anything. What competition does is competition makes you go back and and look for opportunities to streamline what it is you do so you can remain more competitive. I I did a thing in John McLeod. So John McLeod, who's our chief experience officer, 
um, he's got a huge whiteboard behind his desk. And I, I was in there. We have a, a Carrie Waltman, who's one of our um, business development managers. She's relatively new. She's been with us four or five months. And I was, you know, I was in there. You know, I asked her, hey, you know, I was trying to see how her progress was. You know, how much has she learned about what we do? Because she was primarily she was in the life sciences industry before she joined us. And um, and I talked about I said, you know, there's something that you need to to learn about the way that we approach going to market. And that is this. We believe collaboration creates markets. So the argument is collaboration is giving your competitors the key to your safe right? That's, that's the old way of thinking, right? The old integrator had the mentality, go deep, stay long. Um, you know, if, you know, that whole concept, I want to be your engineering firm for the rest forever and ever and ever. And we'll just add as many accounts and we'll bring our engineers in and they'll die of boredom because they're working on the same bullshit stuff over and over and over <laughs> again. You know, it's like, um, and, and moreover, never collaborating with another integrator. I mean, and I, I mean, I've seen this a million times in my, in my career, our strat, our strategy and philosophy is collaboration creates new markets. So, and I actually drew up on John's whiteboard and I said, in 2016, the market for what we do looks like, looked like X. Okay. And I, I did Southeast, I did West. And I talked about here, here's where the maturity was. And I did on a score of like zero to a hundred. I said, here is what it looked like in California and Washington and into Arizona. You know, they were they were the most, if you looked at the companies that had digitally transformed and had leveraged technology to do more with less, they were really on the West Coast. They were far more advanced than most other manufacturers. Texas saw huge spike, right? So we hit, let's say they had a score of like 60. Uh, Texas had a score of like 50. The Southeast had a score of like five. The Northeast had a score of basically zero. Um, the, and the Midwest may, let's say was like a 15, right? It would, it was just in the Midwest. It was just getting going. Right. And I said, one of the things that we had decided was we need to do something about the Northeast. And so we have got to, we're based in Texas. We don't really work with clients in the Northeast. We have, what we've got to do is find clients in the Northeast that we can get started. And then let's find integrators that can support them. We'll train them and they'll support them. And I talked about this strategy, this whole thing where we, went to Indiana and we did this big transformation. And then we found an integrator based in Indianapolis and we, I met with their owners and we trained them up and, you know, they became huge ignition integrators. And then the, we handed that client off to them and it was a multi-million dollar account. And we, you know, we did a project with them where they subcontracted and we trained them and then they handed them over. Uh -huh. And then I said, and here's what the score is in the Northeast today. Okay. The Northeast caught up to Texas. I mean, it, it, it's like a 40 now. I mean, it, there are so many companies that have jumped in. Why? Because integration is a really, really small community. Yeah. I mean, it really is a tiny community. You know, many, think about, I don't know how many accounts you, you guys have. We t we've talked to 1,200 companies. We work actively with like 220 and we are not huge. Huge integrators talk to, thousands of companies and work with six to a, 600 to a thousand. If you, if you're able to flip an integrator, right? If you're able to flip an integrator, you've impacted that entire market. Mm -hmm. Even a little tiny one, yeah. you've impacted 20 companies, 50 companies, hundred companies. Collaboration 
creates new markets. It does not cost you business. It doesn't, it, you're, you're not, it's not zero sum. You know, it's a super, super important concept. Yeah. While um, you were talking about life sciences, it reminded me that there's a client that we're working with and now there's two other integrators within the community. We got a four-way NDA and it's all around creating some um, semantic data models, uh, you know, within the pharmaceutical arena, you know, which for matrix, not as strong as a market as others, but definitely one we've identified is that is a, a core market for us. So we're looking at bringing in these partners and I'm finding that the clients, and I think some of that is back in the day of, oh, we're not going to do that. We want you to be the one stop shop. And you probably could be, it's now, boy, bringing in and people. So we actually had a joint call with this client and brought everybody in and just talked about, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And it made a lot more sense coming from collaborative partners around it. It's that I'm just not there for, you know, a little bit of uh, profit for the company and a commission for myself, as it were. Well, you know, what's interesting. I, I, I use this one to kind of overcome it. I'll say the, the elite expert you need in a very, very specific niche is expensive, mm -hmm. very expensive. Okay. So you, you, as, as end user, you want to see, you want companies that are collaborating because what you're getting, if, if you have a one-stop shop, you're not getting the expert in each niche. You're getting an expert in a niche and you're getting maybe mid-level in other niches. But what you want is your systems integrator, your architect to bring all the experts together from the various companies that apply to this specific problem. And I think Paulo Sullivan said it really well where he, in the chat, he said, collaboration raises the likelihood of executing well for the end client. And that matters. And that opens bigger doors. Mm -hmm. Credibility and trust is the new currency for SIs. And I, and the credibility and trust piece, I couldn't agree more. And we have a video coming out. That's basically five questions to ask your integrator. So it's, it's to the end user and it's five questions to ask your integrator. We're going to close with, uh, I got one question that I want to answer. We'll answer, uh, um, we are, well, I'll answer David McGraw's next week, but I want to answer Richard Shaw's question. So he, he put a thing in discord. I'm looking for ideas for a single bullet digital transformation strategy just for the executive level, nothing too technical. I need a little bit more clarification on the question, Richard, but I wanted to, I wanted to read digital transformation, um, digital strategy statements, example statements that you should feel comfortable going and saying to an executive. So when you ask the question, what is your digital strategy? And they give you a 500 page slide deck. That's not a strategy. Okay. Read, read these statements to them. There's really two. There's a basic one, and then there's a more in-depth digital strategy statement. So the first one is, if you want the 10,000-foot view, is our digital strategy is to use accurate, unified digital data and information to drive decision-making quickly and in real time. Okay? The more comprehensive digital strategy statement, it's missing one sentence at the very end, which would be our business differentiator. But... We use accurate, unified digital data and information to drive decision-making quickly and in real time. We leverage an infrastructure that treats all producers and consumers of data and information as nodes in an ecosystem that interact with one another through a unified namespace. The last statement would be our differentiator, right? So whatever that, whatever sentence it is, that is, you should be asking them what is their digital strategy 
And then you should be reading those statements to them. Okay. Yeah. They don't have to be consecutive. You can have a conversation, but um, hopefully that was helpful. We're a couple minutes over couple of quick things. Well, uh, Dave McGraw had a question that he asked a couple weeks ago. We'll definitely answer next week. We have not decided who the co-host for next week's um, podcast would be. Ho- please give us some feedback on how you like this format. Uh, the idea that we'll have a, a co-host from the community every week. Um, I actually liked it, Dave. I thought it was awesome. He came on. I'd love to Thank have you. you on again. Yeah, don't, don't use me as the basis for that judgment though. So no. okay. <laughs> I think you did an awesome job. Appreciate Thank it, you. man. All right. Uh, thanks for watching everybody. Uh, remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, comment. The comment is the most important if you watch it back because uh, it helps with the algorithm. And uh, we will see you next week.